Hey there, Conquerors. This is episode 31 of Conquering Columbus. We're excited for a great show today. Uh, we had Mr. Will Schroeder on the show, who I'm sure many of you know. Uh, before we get going, though, I want to remind you all to go ahead and uh, click that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. If you haven't already, it'll make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And before we get going here today, we want to make sure to take the time to thank everybody who keeps the lights on over here at Conquering Columbus, and that's all of our amazing sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH and all the cool things they do, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting-edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout, and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend, and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well, and uh, we can trust to deliver high-quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the story behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out MaxEffortMuscle.com. Our final shout-out of the day goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean, the official disinfectant deodorizer for USA Wrestling, is a chlorine dioxide product and has quickly become the leading disinfectant on the market. Uh, they got a patented drop-and-go system and allows users just to add water and place it on whatever they want to disinfect for 30 seconds to eliminate everything from MRSA, staph, and ringworm, Tampatigo and herpes, just to name a few. Procure Clean leaves no chemical footprint, is eco-friendly, and food-grade safe. The only preventable injury in sports is a skin ailment, so let Procure Clean keep your facilities clean and your athletes in their sport. If you want to learn more about Procure Clean, please contact sales at procureclean.com. That's P-R-O-K-U-R-K-L-E-A-N.com, which will be linked in the show notes. And tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, let's get this episode rolling. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, guys. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today we have Will Schroeder with us. And uh, we're going to kick things off. I'll kick it over to my co-host, Mike Minucci, and go ahead and get things started. Hey, thanks, Josh. Uh, 
Conquerors. Will was born in Connecticut, and uh, he's a serial entrepreneur who's founded over seven businesses and uh, started his first business, Blue Diesel, at 19 while a student at Ohio State. And he started many other businesses since then, including uh, Swapelease.com, Unsubscribe.com, Startups.co, and Fundable.com. And Fundable was founded in 2012 and has grown to be the largest business crowdfunding platform, serving over 500,000 startups who have attracted 10 million backers, investors, and supporters. His most recent venture, Startups.co, is a full-service incubator which helps startups find customers, funding, mentors, and world-class education. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Will, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Cool. So kind of, I mean, what's nice about your story is when we kick it off at the beginning, it's really where it starts. I mean, you didn't spend too much time uh, wasting time, I guess. So maybe start back at Ohio State in your path to Columbus and how you were able to come about starting your first business as a student and become an entrepreneur like that. Yeah, well, uh, sadly for me, it was a very long time ago. This is uh, in the early 90s. Uh, I graduated at the bottom of my class in high school in Connecticut, got rejected from every college I applied to, uh, had no interest in business whatsoever. Uh, my primary interest was actually becoming an actor. And so for me, college wasn't that important of a career path. And uh, I was mainly interested in getting to the West Coast so I could uh, get to Los Angeles and, be, and become an actor. And college for me was just potentially a training ground where I could pick up some skills for acting. Uh, along the way, uh, I ended up getting to college finally uh, and then transferring out to Ohio State my sophomore year. What was interesting about that is when I got out here uh, to Columbus, uh, this is circa, call it 93, 94, uh, the internet wasn't even a thing. Uh, and I had grown up with online technology uh, since 1985, and I used it as a hobby, uh, you know, bulletin board systems and 300 baud modems when you tie up your parents' telephone line calling another computer. I mean, really old school stuff. And when the, the web came around, uh, going into about 94, I was one of the few people in the world that understood how to build a web page because it was something that I'd been doing uh, in, a, in a previous iteration before the web for almost 10 years. And I looked at it as a way I could build web pages for, for companies as a way to uh, subsidize my college education while I was still focusing on my acting career. And when I told my friends that I was going to start a business, uh, an internet business, they didn't ask me what kind of internet business. They asked me what the internet was because no one had ever heard of it. And it, and it occurred to me that I was one of a small number of people uh, who actually understood what the internet was and why something like this would be valuable. At, at, a, at a very large scale. And so that year in 94, I started uh, what would become one of the first interactive agencies, Blue Diesel, uh, just really building web pages. And it, it wasn't a very amazing story. I was literally leaving my dorm room in Steve Hall, walking down High Street and asking every business owner if they wanted a web page, which again, the irony is they didn't even know what the, the internet was. Uh, and I picked up a couple clients, and from there I started to build a business. And then, did it grow into more than just web pages, or you just continued to make web pages until your exit, or how did that kind of? Yeah. So uh, again, I wound up being in what would become one of the most transformative industries in history on the very first day. It was just total serendipity. Again, I wasn't thinking I want to be in business. I want to be an entrepreneur. None of that had any relevance to me whatsoever. I was thinking, I want to be an actor, and this is a cool way to pay my bills by designing these web pages, which I can do in my sleep uh, while I finish my degree. 
Uh, with that said, it occurred to me in fairly short order when I was going into these meetings that no one had any idea how big of a business this was going to be or big of an opportunity. And I was kind of at the start of something big. Now, in all fairness, no one could have known how big the internet was going to become. And I certainly didn't have the full picture. But in that time period when things really started to develop uh, around the internet and the web, in the, sh in the course of a year, the whole world picked up on it pretty quickly. And I was in a very fortunate position where I could start to take advantage of that. With that, I started to pitch some larger and larger clients. Uh, and we had some early clients like Intel and MasterCard and uh, Bank One, what's now Chase Bank. And we started to build a real client list. In 97, we teamed up with a uh, what was in a very small ad agency here in Columbus uh, called GSW. And they had maybe 40 people. Uh, we had no more than a dozen. And that same year, uh, both companies merged and pitched a company called Eli Lilly in Indianapolis, the pharmaceutical company, and won a massive contract that really spurred the growth. It, it turned into what's now called Inventive. And uh, I don't even remember the stats anymore, but I think it's a $2 billion company. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah that's, that's pretty huge. So yeah. <laughs> when, you were, uh, when you were in college, you know, how did you kind of balance this business? I mean, were you really pursuing the business a lot at any point? Were, were you, is it hard to balance your time while you're working on Blue um, Diesel? And did you end up finishing your degree or did you? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I, there's a few really important moments in time that you'd, you'd have to appreciate. The first is, in 1994, there was no such thing as the story young entrepreneur that we think of now, where we think of like a Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. You had Steve Jobs in the 80s, who sort of came and went. He was irrelevant by 94. Uh, and then you had Bill Gates, who was kind of his own thing. But these, they were kind of one-offs that came out of the late 70s into the early 80s, and their story had long since been told. But what we think about now, where there's incubators and tons of young entrepreneurs running around everywhere, there was none of that. So no one was giving me a high five saying, hey, you know what a great idea is, is to forego college and start a, a company. Because there is no history of people doing that successfully. At the same time, there is no such thing as a young, certainly a 19-year-old, walking to a Fortune 500 company and telling executives how they should run their business. It just did not exist. No one had ever seen that before. At 19, you made coffee. That was about the extent of your contribution to the company. Um, and for the first time, a whole generation of people, myself included, were walking into boardrooms talking about the future of Fortune 500 companies. And it actually all sort of came true. And uh, my challenge at the time was there was no context for anybody to say to me, this is a good idea. You're young. This makes sense. It was the opposite. It was more like you're too young to do this. This doesn't make any sense. You should probably focus on college. That's all anybody knew at the time. So then you exit Blue Diesel and kind of where's your story at there? What age are you at and where does Will go from there? Well, a couple things happened. Uh, I was really fortunate uh, to hook up with a guy named Blaine Walter. Uh, Blaine had just joined the agency on the GSW side around the time that we connected. He was the whole reason we were able to come together. And you know, he's really responsible for all the incredible growth with Inventive. I mean, I think he's even still gone back there today and helped them grow some more. Uh, and the, the business grew so incredibly fast. You know, we grew from, call it 40 or 50 people in 97 to about 700 people in 2002. And I really learned a lot about 
companies at all different sizes, what growth meant, kind of some of the benefits and some of the costs. And by the time uh, we had sold the agency, this was going into 2002, 2003, uh, I think I was 27 at the time. And, you know, for me, uh, I really wanted to have nothing to do with a big company anymore. Uh, to me, I was most excited when, the, when it was just small and everything was uh, still being figured out for the first time. And so at a fairly young age, I was able to kind of see the entire life cycle of what takes most people their entire lives to grow a company and realize where I wanted to fit in that equation. Mm-hmm. And then you left that company to go on to create another company then? Is that how that process kind of went? Was that when you started yeah, so, with Fundable? Yeah. So I had a couple of ideas. Uh, I wanted to stop spending my time talking to clients about how to build companies on the internet. And I wanted to start building my own companies. So after Blue Diesel, I started what was essentially an incubator. Now, often we think of incubators now as uh, you run a class that has 10 to 12 companies, you invest a little bit of money in each company, and you see which ones take off somewhere. Uh, none of that existed back then. This is, again, circa 2002. Uh, what I was going to do instead uh, is I was going to incubate my own companies, so my own ideas. And so for the next 10 years, uh, I worked on seven different companies, all uh, typically my own ideas and uh, my own capital, um, and uh, everything from what Swapolis, which happened to be an idea that Joseph Auto Group down in, uh, in Cincinnati, uh, but everything else like that, unsubscribed, got cast, et cetera, fundable, uh, were all ideas that I had incubated myself in pursuit. And what did the process of you incubating your, yourself look like? Did you bring in a team around you? or I did. And so, so I had this stupid idea that I was going to come up with all these ideas, uh, put some money into them, spin them up, try to give the company direction and momentum for the first 18 months, and then go on to do something else. And that sounds like a lot of fun. And for a minute it was. Um, but the problem is company creation doesn't really work that way. You're not just some Pied Piper of ideas where you just work on them for 18 months and they go on to become Apple. It doesn't work like that. Startups uh, and successful companies are, are often your life's work. It requires a minimum of five to 10 years just to make something successful. Uh, in, in this mentality of getting it done in 18 months, I can look back on now and realize that was totally flawed. Mm-hmm. Right. I think they say you know the three-year mark is kind of the hump that you need to get over as a business. Um, is that similar in like the large scale startup business? You know, I know that that's like a local business, like the three year hump is where people say like, you got to make it to three years and then, you know, you're not smooth sailing, but you, you've got much further than almost anybody else has. Yeah. There's, there's two things that are happening at the same time, two vectors, if you will. One is, uh, it usually takes that much time to calibrate what product you should be selling who you should be selling it to, and whether or not you can do that at at a profit. You just need enough time out there to figure out all the variables. Um, Even if you're a restaurant, which is a fairly fixed variable game, you know, you pick a particular location, you serve a certain cuisine, you have a certain square mile radius that you can serve. Um, Even though there aren't a ton of variables, you still have to wonder if you had the right product for that audience uh, that they'll come back for on a regular basis. It just takes time to see people keep showing up at the restaurant. doesn't matter if you're a restaurant or an app company. Um, you need that time to calibrate your audience. So three years is often how long it takes to, to come to a decision, yay or nay. The other side is three years is often how long it takes before you actually run out of money personally. Right. So at that point, you can't get any more credit cards. You can't borrow any more money from your folks. All the loans have run out. Um, if you can make it three years on virtually no income, that's usually about as long as people can go. Mm-hmm. So usually those two things and some cross-section happen. 
and somebody says, okay, time to hang up my spurs. So all those companies that you turned out while you're incubating yourself, per se, were any of them successful to you or did any of them take off even with your 18-month approach and then kind of letting them go? Or was that just a complete um, learning experience and, and not much came out of it? Yeah, well, actually, some interesting things came out of it. Um, Swap leases around today. That's That's been a successful, profitable company for every bit of 15 years. Uh, unsubscribe.com, uh, we sold a about two years into it. Um, uh, what I was doing, what's now fundable, were, and another company called BizPlan, were ideas that I'd incubated almost 10 years prior to that, um, but never really kind of taken much further. And by 2012, when I really started to, to focus on fundable, which then grew to become startups.co, which I run today, it was really having done lots of startups myself, I knew what the challenges were for startup companies, and I could tell that there wasn't a lot of good direction being given for how to build companies, and that that was really what I needed to be focused on. So if you think about it, I didn't need to focus on building unsubscriber swapolis. I needed to zoom out a little bit, and I needed to focus on helping people build companies to begin with. So can you talk a little bit about what Fundable started as, exactly how you were bringing companies in, and, and what your guys' role was, and how that is developed into startups.co today? and um, what your guys' main, like you just said, you, you knew what those pain points are. What were some of those pain points that you could help fix that separated you guys from everybody else? Well, uh, it's a few things. Um, in 2012, we were, when we launched Fundable, we were kind of at the dawn of crowdfunding, uh, and, and it kind of bifurcated into two things. You had rewards-based crowdfunding, which is commonly uh, referred to as what you think of when you think Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And then you had equity-based crowdfunding, um, which is where people are actually buying the stock of your company. Uh, we were mo mostly focused on the latter, around equity-based crowdfunding, at a time when it was still just starting to become regulated properly. What we learned was um, getting uh, investors uh, on a platform and getting them to invest in lots of companies is a tough proposition for anyone because there are far more people looking for money than there are investors who can, who can write checks. It'd be the equivalent of, of starting a dating site and there's one girl for every thousand guys. No matter how good you build that business, you still can't change the ratio of people looking to, to the supply that's out there. Mm -hmm. Right. So how did you manage to – so with your investors, I think you know one of the keys would be that um, you can show them out of those thousand choices – a couple of good ones. How did you manage to find the good choices for investors and get them to invest in these businesses? Here's what we found. We didn't want to become a broker slash filter to tell investors these are better businesses than others. And, and it's, a, it's an important nuance because the truth is you can, you can pretty easily spot really bad investments, people who are just totally unprepared, right? But it's often very difficult to, to discern uh, what are promising investments versus absolute home runs? And the truth is, with all the venture capitalists that are out there, with all the people that have ever invested uh, as professional angel investors, etc., no one's figured out the right formula. You bet on what you think works, and then you hope it works out. And typically, the failure rate is still incredibly high. That said, what we focused more on in the early days in Fundable were, was really trying to standardize the process by which people even raise money. So if you guys came to us and you said, hey, Conquering Columbus wants to raise money, we weren't saying, hey, we're going to present you to these five investors because we can't be sure that your investment 
is going to work out or not, nor can the investors. Uh, what we can do, though, is we can save you a ton of time in this process. We can say, are you prepared for this? You know, do you have your basic documents together? And frankly, nine times out of ten, you're not. Uh, we can say, here's what the process looks like. You know, it's, it's not a mortgage application. Here are all the things you have to do to be able to present yourself, and you could go through all these hoops and still not get the cash. People had no idea how the, the capital raising process works. And we helped shed a lot of light on that and create a repeatable process. Uh, and at this point, we've got all, almost $300 million in committed capital through the platform from investors, mainly because we help people figure out how to, how to get involved in this process. So it's almost like these companies came to you and you, you quote-unquote, made them fundable from a sense and made them be able to um, go to investors and, and make things happen and actually grow the company. So it wasn't necessarily um, whether or not people knew it was going to succeed, but just putting them in the right position so they could actually propel themselves forward. Is that? Yeah. Uh, think of it akin to going to college. College doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't um, uh, make you successful. It gives you more of the right tools and puts a better framework in front of you so that you can be successful. But your success is still yours. You still have to earn it. Mm-hmm. Without college, without that framework where you're kind of just kind of flailing in the woods, that doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to create more framework to a process, which probably now we all take for granted. But I can tell you for sure in 2012, if you wanted to raise money, the process to do it was almost non-existent. It was a terrible nightmare. Do you feel like there were any key mistakes that at that time um, entrepreneurs and young companies were making that prevented them from being funded? Yeah, you know, what was tricky was up until then, when you were looking to raise money, you had no idea how anyone else was doing it, right? Because it was all behind closed doors, right? You couldn't go onto a website and see all of the people that were raising money. Even along those lines, even though it wasn't investor money, something like Kickstarter uh, helped thousands of other aspiring entrepreneurs and artists, et cetera, understand how other people were raising money so they could replicate the process themselves. What we really did was we took this black box process and we made it available to everybody so everybody could see what you need to do in order to raise money. And now, from what I understand, and I could be completely inaccurate, but isn't Fundable a branch of Startups.co now, and then Startups.co is more of a larger umbrella? Is that correct? You got it. And that would lead to the, the second revelation that we had. We were about a year and a half into the Fundable business, and uh, we're big fans of trying to talk on the phone or in person to as many people as possible. We don't like to kind of hide behind the website. We like to get very out there in the community. And in talking to all of the startups, uh, what we started to learn was that raising money wasn't really the biggest problem they were having. I mean, ultimately, they didn't have any, so they needed some. Uh, but many of them were lacking the fundamental education to even think about how to start a business. They didn't understand how to put a business plan together, how to get some of their first customers. Uh, in short, they were a long way from ever being at a point where they should start thinking about raising money. So we looked further and we said, well, where are they getting good education and tools to be able to, to walk through the startup process so they can become fundable, which is really more toward the end of the startup process, not at the beginning, because you, you have to start to build a company and infrastructure you're ready to ask for money around it. And we realized that there wasn't really a single point or or place where people could go to understand the whole startup process. And we zoomed out a bit and we said, you know what, we need to be that place. And that was the genesis of startups.co. We realized we wanted to start to build a a platform 
that walked people through each stage of the startup life cycle. And at this point, were you focusing on a certain region or were you just covering the entire United States or how did that look? Yeah, so we've always been global in our reach. Uh, the only product that we've ever had that's been local to the U.S. has been fundable, and that's only because equity funding laws are fairly parochial to the U.S. Okay, so that makes sense. Now, uh, listen to your talk at um, Startup Week recently. I think you mentioned that the, the way you kind of grew fundables into startups.co or grew startups.co was a lot through purchasing other businesses that worked in the same field. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that was definitely a big part of it. So were you just, as you were seeking out companies through Fundable, were you kind of just have your eye on things that you thought, okay, if I conglomerate these, I can kind of make a bigger umbrella business and I can make something happen? Or Yeah, what we did was, it was actually fairly simple. All we did was we zoomed out and we said, what's the path that every entrepreneur goes through in order to start a business, right? And we started to think of things like, okay, well, they're going to need some level of education. Uh, they're going to need to figure out how to put their initial plan together. They're going to need mentorship. They're going to need some early customers to test with. They're going to need funding. And so we just drew out this roadmap of every place an entrepreneur gets stuck. And then we said, how could we have a service uh, or a product that helps them get unstuck from that point? From that point, we just went out to the market and said, who's already helping entrepreneurs? Who's the best in class for each of these problems? And is there a deal to be had? And what did your team look like at that point? Who, who was on your side and um, who was helping you grow the business? Well, um, having run a bunch of businesses in the past, I was able to really pull some of the, uh, the most favorite people that I've worked with in the past. Um, and so uh, I certainly needed help at a lot of different levels with the business, um, whether it be uh, on the sales side, on the operations side, on the marketing side. Um, you know, th th There's a lot of dynamics to our business. Um, and, and fortunately, one of the benefits to having done this for a very long time is I had a pretty deep Rolodex of people that I could tap uh, to bring into the business. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess my question is, what did your role look like then other than bringing in your partners from your Rolodex and people that you've known to work with you? What did your role look like then? And compare that to maybe now where you have a much larger umbrella business running. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people don't realize how incredibly tactical I am in the business or how many different hats that I wear. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, if you're reading copy that's, that's on our site, on any of our sites, I probably wrote it. Uh, if you're looking at layouts for the design, I, I probably had a hand in designing it. If you were hired here, I probably emailed you on LinkedIn to recruit you. If you're getting your pay stub from the company, it's because I ran uh, payroll. Um, I'm involved in literally every part of the business. Do you enjoy that or do you eventually want to step away? Is it because the, the business is still at a certain stage where you think it's a critical factor for you to be involved in those processes or is it well, just... We have, a, we have 150 people now, so certainly there's other people that, you know, that can do a lot of this stuff. Um, so it, it's not a matter of we don't have the resources. Um, frankly, part of it's a matter of I, I absolutely love every facet of our business, right? I get just as geeky over how we're going to handle the taxes of our business as we do of how we're going to handle the uh, creative slogans for our business, as we as, as I do around how we're going to structure deals about companies we acquire. Um, I'm just a weird dude in that way. I get really excited about so many different facets of the business. So up until this point, what are some of the most exciting businesses that you guys have been working with? And have there been any particular success stories and any particular um, quote-unquote failures, I guess, that you've worked with? Yeah, well... It's uh, you're talking about like fairly 
big numbers. You know, we see over 15,000 companies a month. And so, you know, if, if we were working with, like, call it a dozen companies a month, um, you know, I, I could give you like specific, you know, life stories of each of them. But at this point, we're, we're dealing with a very large cross section of companies. And I get asked this question a fair amount. Like everybody wants to know, like if we've, if we've started the next Uber, et cetera. Um, and, and we have some of those companies, um, companies like Roan, which is the fashion apparel line, or Outlet, which um, makes the device that goes on every baby's ankle right now. I just had a newborn, so it's on my baby's ankle um, to detect whether the baby's uh, breathing or not. Um, we just ran a class through what we have is called a retail accelerator where we take um, Internet of Things products or hardware products and we get them in the shelves of uh, major retailers. And all 12 of our companies got purchase orders from um, major retailers like Walmart, Amazon, etc. So we're helping lots of companies in lots of ways. We've got companies here in Columbus like Cafe Brioso that was funded through us. Um, and so it's not just tech. It's not just you know small companies. Um, it's a huge cross-section. But for us, we really don't measure our efficacy on how big the companies get. We measure our efficacy on whether or not people get started at all. Well, and, and, and it's important to me because if the company goes on to become Uber, great. Um, and, and I'm sure that'll change the lives of lots of people. But that concerns me a little bit less than whether or not it changes your life as the entrepreneur. right? Our, our, our real goal here is we just want to enable people to become entrepreneurs. We want basically to teach the world to fish. And we think with the tools, the education, the content, everything that we're building, that we can actually make a dent in that. And so uh, we just want to get you started. Where you go from there, that's up to you. Okay. So that brings me to another question about, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs, hopefully, that are listening to this in Central Ohio. And um, other than giving you a call over startups.co and signing up, what would be some advice that you would give to them that um, they could maybe use today to help grow their companies or help start their businesses if they're just starting out? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not using this to, to pitch one of our products because if you use them, great. If you don't, that's okay too. Um, but we bought a company a couple of years ago called Clarity.fm. And Clarity is a huge network of mostly founders uh, who offer mentorship and advice. Uh, to, to other founders. And most of them charge for it. And frankly, most of the people that charge for it uh, give that money to charity. Uh, so it's not really a moneymaker for, for anyone involved. Um, but the amount of talent and experience that's on there is incredible. And so if you were to, to parse through Clarity and you were to say, look, I need some help with SEO or I need some help with marketing or how to figure out how to pitch VCs, et cetera. And that's a huge, huge resource of people that you can tap. And even if you didn't have a dollar to spend for free, you can just go on there and ask questions, Quora style, of that community. And they're so quick to respond, and the people on there are really smart. How many businesses altogether have you guys purchased in your process of getting to where you are today? We've bought five companies so far, mostly over the last uh, two years. Okay. And then another question I had was, in terms of volume, and you said 16,000 businesses a month that you'll pass through. How are you able to handle such a high volume? Is it just because you're only touching them at certain points, or yeah, most of our most of our product offer is either self service or it's content. So you know we don't have to to sit down with the companies face to face. We love to, but uh, obviously that's that's not practical. Mm -hmm. uh, so most of it, call it ninety nine percent of that, is going to be people that we we never talk to one on one that just use the service. 
uh, for whatever purpose they need it for. And then what does the future path look like you guys look like for you guys from here on out moving forward? We have a long way to go. Um, you got to figure going back to our charter, the, the world is just starting to understand what entrepreneurship really is and what it can mean. Uh, you know, we've got a much more uh, specific viewpoint of it here in the in United States because we've got so much media, because we've had so much success with it. If you look to smaller towns in the U.S., or certainly when we start to look outside the U.S., entrepreneurship is still barely scratched the surface. It's not a regular thing in most other countries. Um, it's in the same way like when I was growing up with my first business in, in 94, and I told you not everybody was telling me, yes, you know, by all means become an entrepreneur. It's still the way in most of the rest of the world. And so to be able to build tools that can educate and enable the rest of the world to be able to grow the way we do in the U.S., I mean, that's going to take us decades. Right. So, and then what are the, what do you think the next 10 to 15 years look like for you personally? Well, I'm kind of doing what I was born to do. You know, fortunately I wasn't born to be an actor. I was really a terrible actor. So thank God I had another vocation. But, um, what I learned throughout this whole process and the catharsis of my career was that I'm really good at helping people understand how to leverage entrepreneurship. So for me, it's, it's spending really the rest of my life uh, building content and product around getting the whole world to become entrepreneurs. Absolutely. So I think one thing I want to jump into really quickly is uh, your opinion on Columbus, um, as not just as a city, but as a place to do business and a place to start a company. And yeah. You, you spent some time, if I'm correct, between here and out in California. <clears throat> Can you maybe talk about some of the contrast between those two different environments too and um, what you've noticed and what you think needs to change or evolve here in, in Columbus? Yeah, so uh, my family and I uh, spend the first 15 days of every month in Columbus and the second 15 days of every month in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, We've also done that in Los Angeles. And so, you know, we're, we're pretty embedded in, in both communities um, and they're fairly different. Now, really when we say fairly different, we're mainly talking about tech businesses. Uh, at startups, we focus on not just tech, but also consumer products, also retail services, business, et cetera. But, it, but the contrast that I'm going to talk about is mainly around technology. Um, in San Francisco, there's, there's nothing like San Francisco. I mean, everywhere else I've been in the world, nothing compares to that city. So it's hard to compare like Columbus to San Francisco because nothing compares to San Francisco. And that's good and bad. I'm not saying like I'm so in love with San Francisco. I'm just saying it's it's a total anomaly. If we were in the media business and I was talking about Los Angeles, I'd say the same thing. If we were talking about um, you know Vegas, I'd be talking about the same thing, right? Like there are certain cities that just have their own unique quality. Um, Columbus uh, isn't much different than pretty much every other city when it comes to growing tech businesses. Um, every city talks uh, compares itself to, to San Francisco. Every city talks about if we just had some more investors, if we just had some more entrepreneurs, if we just took some more risks. It's the same conversation in every single city that I go to. Um, even in Los Angeles, where I lived for about five years, uh, it was the same conversation over and over, and that's a huge city. So for, um, for me, I tend to look at the... Um, the startup business in Columbus as the same as the rest of the country. And I'd say kind of the first thing is um, the comparisons of how do they do things in San Francisco versus how do they do things here? How do they build Facebooks versus how do we build companies here are just silly. They're not relevant. 
things are done in a very unique way out there and they only make sense there. So for us to replicate anything that's happening out there as far as the risks and, and things like that, it's just, it's kind of silly. Is your choice to split time between here and San Francisco for personal purposes or professional purposes? Oh, it's both. You know, the, the company is still based here, although given the fact that, you know, we're, we, we have a, a strong bent in the startup community, which kind of has a hub, if you will, in San Francisco, for business purposes, it, it makes sense to be there. But I will say this. Uh, it's great to be there. It's great to hear big ideas. It's great to hear kind of what the next big thing is. Um, but it's also great to have the perspective of the Midwest to realize that a lot of what you hear there and a lot of what people are talking about at cocktail parties is very insular. Um, it, they, the, the folks there tend to forget that the rest of the world doesn't just care about technology. right? So they'll be telling you about their artificial VR app that they're working on. And you're like, that's really cool, but nobody in the rest of the country gives a shit about it. <laughs> right? Um, and, and people quickly lose that perspective there. Um, the other side of it is, and, and I've always been pretty adamant about that, um, I, I mentor companies out in, in uh, San Francisco at, at like the 500 startups and, and other incubators. And I tend to bring more of an air of um, practicality to the conversation whereby the last five mentors that they would have met with talked about how are you going to prep for demo day and raise a big round from VCs. My question is, how much money are you making and uh, does it exceed your expenses? And I sit down with, with entrepreneurs in, in the Valley and they're like, you're the first person to ask me that. Like, yeah, it's kind of a fundamental question. You know, it's kind of the basis of commerce for about a thousand years. So like, you know, it's not new or novel. Right. It's kind of an important factor. Yeah, yeah. And, and I got to tell you, you can live your whole you know, startup life out there and have not a single person ask you that question, which is mind-blowing to me, but it's, it's pretty typical of that environment. So I kind of bring some Midwest sensibility out there. Conversely, coming back here, um, we're insular as well, right? Like um, We like to speculate on how things are going on the coasts or kind of the technology world, but not a lot of people here actually know that. They're not actually in those in those events or, you know, kind of uh, at those tables, um, they're guessing. Um, and, and I think we suffer from a different mentality here is uh, we don't think big enough. Whereas people out there maybe think too big sometimes. They forget the rest of the world doesn't care about these things. Here, again, we're kind of uh, isolated. It's almost like trying to find that even medium between, you know, meshing those two societies together. And I think that's cool. I've heard, I heard a TED talk the other day where they were talking about the future of manufacturing. And this is kind of a tangent. I don't want to jump off on it too much. But they talked about mixing like kind of the businesses and the bootstrapped businesses that come out of the Midwest with the tech of the West Coast and then how they're building businesses around that. So like companies like John Deere and things like that are starting to develop technologies into their software that's propelling them forward and innovating and things like that. Um, do you see yeah. that as a trend moving forward with startups and in, in in something in, in the future that's going to open up? So what you're seeing. Um, imagine there's, I'm just making this up, but call it a dozen different true innovations in how people build businesses, right? Everything from how crowdfunding has evolved to how search engine optimization has evolved for, you know, for customer acquisition, et cetera, um, to how you can create virtual workforces to get work done, like uh, to, to build a site, et cetera. These are all massive disruptive changes in how companies can be built. Almost all of them started and evolved within the tech space. But now kind of everybody else has figured it out too. Whereas it used to be you were a tech company if you did e-commerce. 
now you're just a company if you do e-commerce. Of course you sell stuff on the internet, right? Like, like where else would you sell, right? Um, I think what you're seeing now is you're seeing that a lot of these technologies and innovations are just starting to proliferate everywhere. And uh, it's become kind of the standard issue that you have to understand search engine optimization if you're going to be running any type of business. So I think while, while these uh, disruptions kind of tend to come from Silicon Valley and, and the tech world as a whole, I think they've quickly permeated every type of business. And so it's good to go there to kind of see, again, what the latest and greatest techniques are. But for the most part, I think everybody has to adopt some level of uh, technical proficiency to run any kind of business at this point. So just a natural evolution of this process where companies don't it. do it or they don't survive. Um, yeah, very much so. Right. And so one thing that I think about a lot lately is that as these technological advances and disruptions, like you said, um, move forward, one of the main uh, people it impacts isn't business owners per se, but it's the people who work for them, especially in the manufacturing business like here in the Midwest, where a lot of people's jobs are going to be taken over by AI and, um, you know, robotics, things like that. Do you think that there is a business solution to the problem presented by that? Uh, it's, uh, I don't know if I would frame it as a business solution, but I understand the question. Imagine for a minute that as a population, uh, as a human population, that lifting heavy stuff and doing manual labor isn't what we were meant to do. What if we're in the caveman era of how humans made money? What if in the future people make money with their minds and not their bodies? And that's what we're supposed to do. But we don't think about it now because we think, oh, I'm not as smart as the next guy who can use a computer, so I'm going to go toil away in the fields. What if in the future, coding HTML is the equivalent of toiling away in the fields? Think about it this way. 30 years ago, call centers didn't exist. I mean, they existed in some capacities. Mm -hmm. but, but now somebody getting a, a $10 an hour telemarketer job is like a real job for an enormous part of the population. Right? Mm -hmm. That's not a physical job. Um, all types of new jobs will exist that just won't require the physical component that we're used to, and people will adapt accordingly. Technology, as we think about it, you know, the ability to use a computer, the ability to program, et cetera, right now still feels like a big difference between, call it, uh, a blue-collar working class and folks that are kind of in this, this new kind of tech era. 20, 30 years from now, it won't. 20, 30 years from now, every single person that's alive will have grown up with a computer, and being able to use technology will be second nature to pretty much every living, breathing human. And by way of that, we'll start to create all kinds of new jobs and opportunities uh, that all have to do with technology. Again, using more of our, our minds and less of our, um, our hands. And so what we're in right now is that funky period where you're seeing a transition for that. It's, it's the current equivalent of, of the industrial age where machines started to take away uh, the job of humans. Two final questions I want to wrap up with um, before we part ways. The first one, I heard that there was an interview with you in, I don't know if it was Business First or Business Insider the other day, and there was some feedback throughout the community about it. I didn't get a chance to read it, but I didn't know what your perspective was on that and kind of how that unraveled, um, or if it's something that you're even interested in talking about. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I, I sat down with Carrie Ghost from Business First, uh, and I've known Carrie for, for a bit. And she asked the same question that you guys asked earlier in this, which was, you know, what can Columbus do differently? And uh, I spend a lot of time talking with founders uh, everywhere, but I also spend a lot of time talking with founders here in Columbus. And, and most of the companies, most of the founders here, I've probably sat across from in my kitchen table at some point over the last 20 years and kind of had a heart-to-heart -heart with. 
And so all I conveyed to her was a lot of the stuff where folks are complaining that Columbus isn't getting enough government money or VC money or this or that. I said, you know, at the end of the day, none of that really matters. Uh, at the end of the day, what we need to do is we need to just stay focused on building a business. And by way of those successes, um, just you know, kind of just grinding out big businesses, we'll have the next big companies that we can start to kind of hang our hats on. What I don't want the Columbus community to do, or really any other city, is spend a lot of time talking about how we need some grand vision or plan to get started at the expense of just rolling up our sleeves and starting stuff. And so one last question we want to end with is something we ask all of our guests here on the show. And it's based around our motto here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. It's on the back of our shirts. And we chose it because we feel that in order to be successful, you have to live uncomfortably constantly and push yourself to your limits. So what do you think of the phrase and uh, how has it affected your life and how have you lived uncomfortably? I lived my entire life uncomfortably, so I mean that's that's not new for me. I'm uh, I'm very comfortable running into the abyss, right? That's to me. I, I'm only in my zone when I'm doing things that have no defined outcome. That that I'm running races that may or may not have a finish line attached to them. Um, and so for me, that's that's sort of second nature. I actually get uncomfortable when I know what the outcome is. I'll give you a good example. I'm a huge video gamer. At which point I've gotten the best weapon and I know exactly how to beat uh, every boss that's left, I have no interest in the game. I'm only interested when I have the crappiest weapon and I have to go into grind mode for hours on end in order to kind of beat the next level. If I'm not that in that kind of competitive mode, I just don't make a lot of sense. So for me, living uncomfortable is kind of the only way that makes sense for me. Well, thanks, Will. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up and uh, appreciate your time and all the insight that you had to give today. And it was awesome sitting down and talking with you. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, No, I mean, again, love what you guys are doing. Uh, Love the community is actually talking more and has broadcasts like this that can start to get more people asking the right questions about what they want to do here. Well, thanks again, Will. We appreciate having you on the show today. And uh, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you liked that episode, please go ahead and click that subscribe button on uh, whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps us out. And make sure you guys never miss a single episode. Check us out on social media. We're all over Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. And uh, share this episode with your friends if you enjoyed it. Before we let you go today, we do want to take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH and all the cool things they do, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting-edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Uh, Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout, and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend, and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well. 
and uh, we can trust to deliver high quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the story behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out maxeffortmuscle.com. Our final shout out of the day goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean, the official disinfectant deodorizer for USA Wrestling, is a chlorine dioxide product and has quickly become the leading disinfectant on the market. Uh, they got a patented drop-and-go system and allows users just to add water and place it on whatever they want to disinfect for 30 seconds to eliminate everything from MRSA, staph, and ringworm, Tampatigo and herpes, just to name a few. Procure Clean leaves no chemical footprint, is eco-friendly, and food-grade safe. The only preventable injury in sports is a skin ailment, so let Procure Clean keep your facilities clean and your athletes in their sport. If you want to learn more about Procure Clean, please contact sales at procureclean.com. That's P-R-O-K-U-R-K-L-E-A-N.com, which will be linked in the show notes. And tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.